Please remain standing and open your Bibles or use the text printed in the bulletin and turn to Ezra chapter 3. Our passage will be looking at verses 8 through 13 of Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3 verses 8 through 13. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of the king of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord, house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. You may be seated. And together let us go to the Lord and ask his guidance as we seek to understand his word. Father God, we thank you for texts like these. A glimpse into what your people experienced thousands of years ago and seeing how it even relates thousands of years later for us today. May you guide us into all uh, wisdom and truth. May my words be true and accurate and clear. And may we be revived by your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Human beings everywhere love being together. We will look for pretty much any reason to get together. A birthday, a holiday, a sunny day, or any day. One American chef, chefs knowing a little bit more about gatherings of people, calls this the power of gathering. She says, there is this power of gathering. It inspires us delightfully to be more hopeful, more joyful, more thoughtful, in a word, more alive. Now, without trying to be too controversial, hasn't this reality been one of the more difficult parts of handling the ongoing pandemic? People love to be together. And I'm not sure how much we align with this idea of the power of the gathering, but whatever the case is, we want to gather together. College kids were hearing the reports coming out of the daily uh, governor's reports. They want to enjoy time with their roommates, their classmates, and their friends. Sports fans want to be able to go to the games to celebrate with people in the seats. Neighbors want to have cookouts and barbecues together to celebrate the end of summer, the beginning of another school year. Churches, we would like to be operating in normal ways. 
Large families, extended families with multiple generations yearn to get together, to be with one another. And this is what has made the personal and social effects of this pandemic so difficult. Gatherings are either not happening or they're significantly limited or different. This has added an element of, of sorrow even in the midst of joyful gatherings. Someone or some group of people cannot be there. This seems and has seemed to be the clearest when it comes to weddings and graduations, which many of you here know all too well. Yes, it is a great joy, and it was a great joy. There were two weddings uh, here at Covenant with the Covenant family to see couples exchange their vows or to see graduates receive their diplomas after years of hard work. But there was also a little bit of grief intermixed. Maybe a grandparent couldn't be there because of them being at risk of exposure. Or maybe a sibling, in the case of graduations, wasn't even invited at all. Maybe room for near and dear friends simply did not exist. Whatever the case, these special gatherings, typically meant for joy and celebration, carried with them a sense of sorrow, a this-should-not-be type of feeling. Our passage this morning in Ezra chapter 3 describes a very similar gathering. And while weddings and graduations are certainly great events, this one takes the cake. This is the first formal gathering of the Israelite people upon returning from exile back to the promised land. After being removed, forcibly so, from their homes for 70 years, the people of God finally go back home. No more are they worshiping in private, probably just as families. No more are they facing Jerusalem while being thousands of miles away. They are back in the land. And as expected, there is great joy and celebration as they gather. There is worship as the people begin putting the pieces of their lives back together. And maybe equally expected or entirely unexpected, there is also great mourning, weeping. Some cannot help but grieve as they begin putting the pieces of their lives back together. But in the midst of it all, serving as the kind of eye around which this storm of sorrow and joy is swirling, is the confession of verse 11. It is the constant in this story, if you will. It is what unites this particular people gathering together. Whether in joy or in sorrow, the people of God gather to praise him for his abundant goodness. And this same reality holds true for us this morning and each and every Sabbath morning that we gather. Some of us come every single morning or certain mornings with great joy over the events of the past week, month, maybe even a year. Others of us come with great sorrow for the same reasons. Whatever the case, this passage from Ezra encourages us, each of us, individually and corporately as we gather together. God is good to his people, whether they're in times of joy or in times of sorrow. And we gather together in those times, mixed times of joys and sorrow, to exalt his name. There's two points this morning, only two points. 
First, we're going to look at the people worship, and then we're going to look at how the people weep. These two points are going to flow primarily out of verses 10 through 13. This is where we'll spend our time this morning. Verses 8 and 9 are important, though, as they help us to set the context for this formal gathering of the people of God. For up to this point in Ezra, we learn that under Cyrus of Persia, a pagan leader, the Israelites have been granted permission to go back home and rebuild their temple. Ezra 1 and Ezra 2 record this. And the first thing that they do when they get there in Ezra chapter 3 is they rebuild the altar. They desire to offer sacrifices to the Lord once again. And the first half, we didn't read it of chapter 3, is that successful project. They set up an altar, and they start making sacrifices on it. Naturally, then, the next building project, if you will, is a new temple. The altar needs to be kept somewhere besides just out in the open. And so, as we read, in starting in verse 8, the people begin actively engaged in the work of laying the foundation. And we see that everyone gets involved. The leaders get their hands dirty. Zerubbabel is a governor-like figure. He's leading the way in this building project. And the lay people follow after him. We also see the spiritual leaders getting involved. Jeshua is a Levite, likely the high priest at that time. And he rallies the rest of the priests and the Levites to help the project. And then from there, all the returnees who are able engage in laying the foundation for this new temple. And we find that they are successful. They are successful first in following the law. These supervisors that they position, they're not taskmasters driving people or cracking whips, but they're people who know the law. And their job is to see that, to oversee that the project is being done with ritual purity at each and every step. But Israel is not only successful in their purity as they build this foundation, they're also successful in that the job gets done. Not only is it true that many hands make light work, but united hands get the job done. We see in Ezra 3 verses 1 where it says, The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem, and this oneness continued right up and through the laying of the foundation in verses 8 and 9. So that's kind of the background, that's the setting before we jump into the gathering of the people in verses 10 through 13. Because once all that work is finished, once the altar is set up, once the foundation is laid, the community gathers again as returned Israelites to respond to the Lord for all that has taken place. And the first thing that we see again in verses 10 and 11 is that the people worship. The only right thing the people can do when they see the foundation laid and finished is praise the Lord together. And notice how this worship service, like the building project, is done by the book. It says that they came forward, it lists all these people, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. This little phrase according to the directions of the king of Israel, is rather significant. We know from Israel's history, they have been anything but good at following directions, especially when it comes to worship. 
Israel was constantly tempted with outright defiance of the law or syncretism, which is the blending of the way God said he is to be worshipped with the way the nations worship. You may remember at the beginning of this year, seems like a long time ago, but Tim walked us through the law of instructions on worship in Deuteronomy 12. And then he also walked us through how that informs the way we worship today. I would encourage you over the past, over this course of this week, go back and listen to that in light of this text here. Because the right worship of the triune God is an important theme throughout the entire Old Testament and Scripture as a whole. We seek to do it by the book, because in it, God has told us exactly how he is to be worshipped. Worship is not something to be taken lightly or done haphazard. We worship in the manner we do out of reverence for the Lord, out of a desire to obey the instructions he has given us in Scripture. And in their very first gathering back in the Promised Land, the people of Israel get it right. The reference to David likely connects to 1 Chronicles 25, where David puts together the organization of those leading in worship, the musicians, the instrumentalists. He puts everyone together in order. The inclusion of the Levites, even their attire, the priests, the trumpets, the cymbal, all of that points back to the law and instructions given by Moses. And in fact, nearly every single detail in verse 10 points back intentionally to 2 Chronicles 5, where you remember, hopefully, Solomon, at the end of his temple, presents it to the people and dedicates it to the Lord. And that connection amplifies, then, this gathering of God's people here in Ezra 3. This is monumental. This is huge. It is meant to look and feel like that great day when Solomon presented the finished temple to the people. Yes, in the grand scheme of things, those two days cannot be compared. But this does not stop the people from trying to have those two days mirror one another as best as possible. Even the confession in verse 10 is the same as it was on that glorious day. 2 Chronicles 7, 3 says, When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The overall setting and experience of these two gatherings may have changed, but the confession and the truth that it conveyed did not. The people worship because God is good and because he is filled with steadfast love towards his people. Yes, the old, te the old temple was awesome. Yes, it, that day that it was dedicated was one of the greatest days in Israel's history. There was fire coming down from heaven. There was gold likely beaming off of the sunlight. There was great sacrifices. Israel was seeing the promise made all the way back to Abraham being fulfilled right before their very eyes. However, the differences between that day and this one in Ezra 3 has no bearing on who the Lord is 
and what he has done for his people. Even though everything else had changed, the Lord had not. For it was the Lord who preserved a remnant of his people, even after judgment and faithfulness to his covenant. It was the Lord who stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, a pagan king, allowing the Israelite exiles to go home. It was the Lord who also moved Cyrus to send them with the vessels of the temple as they went back. And it was the Lord who strengthened his people to rebuild the altar and start making sacrifices on it. The people could not help but praise and give thanks as they considered all that the Lord had done. They united their voices in worship along with the voices of Israel throughout the generations before. We know that Israel had many confessions, much like we, the church today, have many confessions, many of them the same. Next to the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, in Deuteronomy 6, this one here is probably the second most familiar. It is repeated or alluded to in many of the Psalms. The people of God, as they gathered together throughout the generations, repeatedly would have sang this refrain. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And many people, I would agree with them, think that this responsive song that is mentioned in verse 11 was likely Psalm 136, which begins with this confession. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then from there, each verse gives a declaration about God to which the people would respond, for his steadfast love endures forever. And this continues on for 26 verses. 26 times the people of God respond with, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And that psalm retells critical parts of Israel's history, building to this climactic repeat. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His steadfast love endures forever. By the end, you can understand then how in Ezra 3, there is this euphoric shouting of the people. It was joyful. It was emotional. It was loud. If you have ever been to a sporting event, you know this type of joyful shout. It is a response to what you are seeing unfold before your eyes. I remember being at a Philadelphia Eagles playoff game in high school. You may be familiar with the game where the Eagles famously converted a fourth and 26 with under two minutes to go. For you football fans, you know that's a pretty significant thing. They eventually tied the game on that drive on a field goal and won in overtime. And despite not being an Eagles fan, I have to correct him from a sermon a few weeks ago, I am confusingly a Panthers fan, I could not help but join in that jubilant shouting and screaming and joy and euphoria. I think it was one of the loudest things, shoutings, I have ever been a part of. And it was also the day where I learned that it is okay and sometimes even appropriate to hug complete strangers. The sub-zero temperatures of that day no longer mattered. The fact that I could not feel my fingers or my toes was irrelevant. I was shouting at the top of my lungs with joy, just like everyone else. That is 
what Ezra records, the people shouting with a great shout at the foundation being laid of the temple. This language also echoes Joshua 6, right before the walls of Jericho come down, where the people have just spent their time circling the city seven times and then blow their trumpets and shout a loud, triumphant There is intense joy and jubilation. There is great delight. There is celebrating all that the Lord has done for his people. And even something as seemingly insignificant as a foundation being laid. Think of it in our day. Just a concrete slab laying in the middle of an open field. Is tangible proof of God's abundant goodness to his people. It could only lead to singing and giving thanks. It didn't matter if the job wasn't complete yet. It didn't matter that some Israels remained in exile. It didn't matter that the throne continued to sit unoccupied. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He is the generous giver. He is the covenant keeper. And we today gather under similar circumstances. Yes, the work is not finished. We just sang about it. We are still waiting the fullness of our redemption. We are, as 1 Peter tells us in his letter, exiles waiting to go home. And yet our confession is the same. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Our joy is the same. And technically, our joy is even greater. Because of the obedient life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know without a shadow of a doubt the goodness of the Lord and the extent of his steadfast love for his people. Because it is in his goodness and his love that he sent Christ to take the punishment for our sin. To exchange his righteousness for our filthy rags. And he has adopted us as his beloved children for all eternity. How can we say anything but God is good and his steadfast love endures forever? He has done what we could never do. He has been faithful to his covenant without wavering, unlike us who waver day in and day out. And he has given us his very spirit, his life-giving spirit to dwell within us. And we have the promise that we will one day be glorified in his presence. We will dwell, as a book I've been reading, in the unbridled goodness and love God has for his people. The veil will be taken away and we will experience the goodness and love of God in its full display. Right there is enough joy to fuel our worship, joyful worship, for this life and the next. Which then begs the question, does it? Do we gather week in and week out, waiting, anticipating, eagerly, to joyfully sing and declare the goodness of our God? Do we lift our voices with our brothers and sisters here in the presence, those on the live stream and those around the world, to adore the God who loves us eternally in Christ? 
Are we marked by delight and gladness as we consider and remember who the Lord is and what he has done? The community of God's people worships with great joy in response to the goodness and love of our God. But second, we also see that the people weep. We see this in the second half of verses 12 and 13. While the sight of the new foundation leads some, the young, to rejoice, we see the leaders weep. It says that many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. You get the picture that the few who had likely seen and even had the privilege of worshiping in Solomon's temple could not help but feel this deep sadness, even on a great and glorious day as this was. Now the reality of Israel's weeping does present a little bit of a problem, because the passage provides no moral evaluation of their weeping. There is no statement whether the leaders were in the right or in the wrong for weeping as they did. And the potential problem becomes even more of a problem when we consider two prophets who ministered around this time. Both Haggai and Zechariah allude to events somewhere around this time in their writings. Haggai, in Haggai 2.3, notes the striking contrast between the former and the current temple. And he said the people were guilty of viewing it as nothing in their eyes. There is a sense that this kind of weeping was, was a consideration that this new temple was nothing significant. It was a cardboard box compared to what the old temple was. Their weeping then was out of a, a sense of dissatisfaction or disappointment. And similarly, Zechariah 4.10, he rebukes the people who despised the day of small things, referring to the work of Zerubbabel. He, he tells them they outright despise the day. He takes it a little bit further. But it's hard to say what either of these two prophets are specifically referring to. Some say it's definitely this passage here in Isaiah chapter 3. Because there's a link of weeping. Others say it's pointing more to the completion three chapters later of the temple in Ezra 6. There's no mention of weeping. But with the time passing between chapter 3 and chapter 5, we see the entrance of Haggai and Zechariah and their ministry. But regardless of exactly what those prophets were specifically speaking to, there is something in this idea of the people weeping that should both encourage and challenge us today. The encouragement is that the people of God can and do rightfully weep when they gather together. We are not called to be Stoics in our everyday lives or in the regular gatherings of the body. We can weep. We can be filled with sorrow. We can lament individually and together. Tim encouraged us two weeks ago when he preached on Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Without a doubt, the people listed in verse 12 mourned over why Israel was where she was. 
returning home from exile without a king or a temple. Certainly there were those in that group who knew it was Israel's apostasy, their idolatry, their outright rebellion that led to her destruction. They knew that God had given his people exactly what he promised should they turn their backs on him. So while the Lord was good to bring them back, things were still not right. Former glories were gone. Certain blessings were strikingly absent. And they had only their sin to blame. We weep and we mourn for similar reasons as we gather. Each of us has indwelling sin. It causes real problems. It does real significant damage. It remains an affront to our holy God. There is also sin in our midst corporately as we gather. We're not as united as we should be, failing to grasp exactly the depths of our union together in Christ. We put the needs of ourselves over the needs of the body. And as we confessed just moments ago, we don't take advantage of opportunities presented to us to serve one another and to serve those around us. On top of all that, there's sin in this world. We see this daily. Life is not treated as sacred. People kill one another, hate one another, exploit one another. Injustice abounds. Greed, immorality, abuse, despising authority, gossip, slander, the list goes on, are everywhere. We bring all of this with us when we gather together as the body of Christ. We feel the heaviness, some of us more so than others, because of circumstances, because of situations. And then, on top of all of that, we also bring the grief of the effects of sin. Death, sickness, pain, and loss. And so, like Israel, we weep because we see that things are not how they should be. We weep because we know restoration is coming and we long for it to get here. And so Ezra 3 invites us to come and weep. Even as other members may be coming with great joy and delight, we can come with our sorrow. We sang it together in the opening hymn. I'll repeat it for you because when we sing, we sometimes miss it. Where it says, come those whose joy is morning sun, the worshipers with joy, and those who weep through the night. Come those who tell of battles won and those struggling in the fight. The joyful in our midst need not feel guilty or ashamed of their joy. There is no hint that the younger generation felt that or should have felt that. But neither should those who come with weeping feel ashamed of their sorrow. Just as the joyful sing and confess and profess and listen in their joy, so should the sorrowful sing, confess, profess, listen in their sorrow. It is not less of an act of worship. Scripture is filled with saints who worship the Lord in great times of sorrow, even in the gathering of God's people. 
Even our Savior did it. Where we know before the garden he was deeply troubled in soul, he and his disciples go to the garden singing together hymns of joy. So that's the encouragement of us as we gather that we can weep because things are not the way they should be. But the challenge does come as we consider the words of Haggai and Zechariah. Whether speaking directly to this event or not, the prophets challenge us when we are tempted to weep without hope, without recognizing that God is still at work in our midst, without confessing that even in our sorrow and our grief, God is still good. Those Levites weeping over the sin and the misery of Israel that caused this, they should be commended. Those weeping because that day meant nothing, those weeping because they despised that day, should have been rebuked. It was wrong if they could not see their own sin and God's faithful response to it. It was wrong if they could not see the goodness of the Lord, even in that unassuming foundation being laid. It was wrong if they could not taste the steadfast love of the Lord in the physical presence of the people of God back in the land, gathering together as his people. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, writes about this passage. Whatever our condition is, however many so, however how many, got flowery language, how many soever are griefs and fears, let it be owned that God is good, and whatever fails, that his mercy fails not. Let this be sung with application as here. Not only his mercy endures forever, but it endures forever towards Israel. Israel went captives in a strange land and strangers in their own land. Don't get me wrong, this is not easy. Seeing the goodness of the Lord in the midst of our sorrow takes the help of his spirit. Confessing his steadfast love through our tears can only be done by his strength. And one of the ways he strengthens us is when we gather with the body. We see those who were once weeping, now shouting with great shouts of joy. We witness how the Lord has been faithful, as Psalm 34 tells us, to draw near to the brokenhearted and save the crushed in spirit. So if this is you this morning, the Lord invites you to bring your sorrow. You need not hide it. As it did in Ezra 3, it blends almost in a beautiful way with the shouts of joy of God's people together glorifying his name. The passage ends with, so the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful from the sound of the people's weeping, and it was heard from far away. And it is this type of blending of the weeping and the worshiping, or the, should I say the weeping and the joyful, that will continue until the day of joyful consummation, when Christ will come for his bride and put an end to all sin death, sickness, and sorrow. Again, we see the truth of Jesus Christ here, even in this text. God's restoration project of his people did not end in Ezra 3 or even in Ezra 6 when the temple was finished. 
as these two, as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, two books that go very closely together unfold, we read of all the wonderful things that happen, wonderful things that confirm the goodness of the Lord and his steadfast love as the people return to the land. They repent of their sin. They rebuild. They renew their covenant. They even reinstitute the Passover and the feasts. They return to the Lord. And yet they still struggle. They stumble and they fall. They sin. They learn that they need more than the loudest of shouts and the deepest of weeping. We thankfully know the end of the restoration project. It is Jesus Christ. It is he, the one who guarantees what Psalm 126 verse 5 proclaims. That those who sow in tears will reap shouts of joy. We, the people of God, we can weep as we gather. Knowing that God remains good. And that his steadfast love endures forever. We have all come to gather together this morning. Whether you are here in person or you're with us via the live stream, you are here to worship. For some, praising the Lord for his goodness and love this morning has been an absolute delight. Your voice has been raised with joy. If we were not wearing a mask, everyone could see your smiling face and love it. And I pray that all of us, regardless of our condition as we come in, we're able to rejoice with you. To follow the words of Paul in Romans 12, 15, to rejoice with those who rejoice. For others, praising the Lord this morning for his goodness and love has been a real struggle. Your voice has been raised in sorrow if you had the strength to raise it at all. You may be glad you're wearing a mask so no one can see your face of sorrow. I pray that all of us, whether we're rejoicing, we're able to weep with you. To follow the other half of Paul's words to, Romans, to the Romans in 12.15. To weep with those who weep. Ezra 3 is not simply a historical text telling us what the people of God did thousands of years ago. It is certainly that, but much more. It is an invitation for us as individuals and as the body of Christ to come with our joy and our sorrow when we worship. It has been the sound of God's people throughout the generations. And it will continue to be the sound until the day the trumpet sounds and Christ comes for his bride. So let us not lose heart if we're in the midst of sorrow. Or as the author of Hebrews admonishes, let us not neglect meeting together, whether we're in joy and sorrow, as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day nearing. We encourage one another whenever we gather to worship. Whether in joy or in sorrow, we, the people of God, gather to praise his name for his abundant goodness to us. Let us pray. Father God, you are good. We have confessed it multiple times this morning in singing, in words of confession. God, your steadfast love endures forever. We know that chiefly in Christ. And we thank you for him. Thank you for his death, for his 
resurrection, for the fact that there is a day of consummation that we are waiting. And so, God, I pray that as we, your people, gather together week in and week out, this morning as well, that we would come with our joy, with our sorrow, and together lift our voices, confess our praises, and exalt your name, and that you would be glorified. Encourage those of us who need encouragement. Revive those who need revival. But God, unite us together, whether in joy or sorrow, to praise you for your goodness and your love. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.